Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colograph. I'm Peter Moore. Today we're up at 10,000 feet to catch the very first glimpse of the Spitfire. The 1920s are often remembered as the Roaring Twenties, an exuberant time when people threw off the inhibitions of the past and gazed towards the future. One event that caught the zeitgeist was the Schneider Trophy, a sort of Formula One race in the air where the best designers and the bravest pilots would see who could push their airboat the fastest. As today's guest, Alistair Cross, explains, there was something extra special about the Schneider Trophy of 1925. The rise of Benito Mussolini to power in Italy had injected an extra sense of tension, but for the British, all eyes were on the curious new Supermarine S4. Back then, the excitement was all about an innovative plane that was going to smash the 200 mile per hour mark. But looking back today, there is something far more interesting about R.J. Mitchell's Supermarine S4. It was the first look that everyone got of that plane that would become the Spitfire. Alistair Cross is a radio and television producer and the co-author of the book The Spitfire Kids, the generation who built, supported and flew Britain's most beloved fighter. This week marks 81 years since the beginning of the Battle of Britain, the contest with which the Spitfire will forever be remembered. So this was a perfect opportunity for me to find out a bit more about the origins of a masterpiece of British engineering. I shall begin by welcoming you, Alistair Crofts, to Travels Through Time. This is, um, I hope, going to be a really fun recording. There's so much we're going to talk about. You've given me some wonderful material to start with. But I think the first point of um, opening up has to be, of course, with the Spitfire. The best place to start is with the machine itself. It's widely known as a masterpiece of British engineering that fought most famously in the Battle of Britain, which started 81 years ago this week, I think, if I've got my maths right. So 400 miles an hour, eight machine guns, turns on a sixpence. It was too much for the Messerschmitts um, with its dexterity and its Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. When did it first appeal to you as a piece of engineering? The first time I saw one, I think, was in the Orkney Islands, uh, where, where I was brought up. And there was an air show, which was occasionally held. It must have been the most northerly air show in Britain, and probably the smallest one as well. Somebody at the airport, some guy who ran the airport, had connections with the RAF and with uh, kind of collectors around the country. So we'd get the red arrows coming up. We'd have these astonishing old military aircraft from around the world appearing at the tiny little airport in Kirkwall in, in Orkney. And... Uh, I got this very faint memory of being absolutely dazzled by a pink Spitfire, a powder pink Spitfire. And when I was writing the book, I was, th- I was thinking about thinking, 
could that be possible? A pink Spitfire? It just seemed so unlikely. Um, but a, a little bit of research revealed that some of the um, later models of the Spitfire that were used for air reconnaissance were actually painted pink on the bottom because that was apparently harder to spot from from the you know extreme altitude that, uh, that they'd be getting fired at by the Germans. Oh, so it was an original feature. Yeah. It wasn't something that, yeah. that a kind of whim of someone in 1967 when they thought they'd... <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought it was a, <laughs> Changed a slightly thing. camp collector had kind of uh, designed one themselves. But no, this was, this was a real thing. The pink Spitfire did exist. Right. Well, so I suppose as well, we alluded to it there. There's the the actual machine itself and the legend of of the operations in the Battle of Britain. I mean, if you look at this history with a very clear eye, how can we appraise the importance of the Spitfire in that particular theatre of war? Was it absolutely fundamental as we've been brought up to believe or is there a slight like slight element of hype about the story too well inevitably it's a little bit of both when you mention you're writing a book on a spit on the spitfire you immediately get lots of uh, calls and emails saying "Uh, but there was more hurricanes during the battle of britain yeah they shot down more german planes which is absolutely true and undeniable and the war the battle couldn't have been won without the hurricane i'm sure but i'm sure it couldn't have been won without the spitfire either and the spitfire Although it shot down less aircraft, it became an icon, and and the iconic status was actually really useful during the war. There, there's a there's a kind of much spread rumor that German pilots would always say they were shot down by a Spitfire rather than by anti-aircraft fire or a Hurricane or something else, because there was a certain kind of element of pride in that, because the reputation of the Spitfire had had spread so far and so fast, and 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 had frightened Luftwaffe pilots. It, it almost had more of a more of a role as a as a kind of propaganda tool than it did actually, you know, shooting down aircraft in 1940. Mm. I can see early because when I was thinking about this interview in this episode, of course, I went back to look at that film, the first of the few. Which mm. um, the, the the most striking thing about that famous black and white film is that it was shot in. Um, and I should say it's actually called Spitfire or known as Spitfire in the States, isn't it? Which um, is, is, right, worth, yes. is worth saying. But that was shot in 1942. So very, very early on. I mean, this is during um, the war itself and even before many of the consequential moments of World War Two had happened. So if there is a legend to the Spitfire, it was formed very, very early. And you have these actors saying, I can't see a spit in the air without getting a kick out of it. It's designed to give you a <laughs> shot of adrenaline, isn't it? That's right. Uh, the, the reputation w- was forged so early. And even while the Battle of Britain was on, there were film producers in Hollywood and in the sort of British equivalent around London who were kind of casting around for scripts and and stories and actors and things to, to actually produce a Spitfire film as quickly as possible. And, you know, films were coming out in 1941 in the States and, uh, and 42, the first of the few, actually kind of most of the American ones, in fact, had exactly the same storyline. There were three in a row that all had a storyline where there's a slightly arrogant American pilot came over to Britain to help help out the Brits during the battle, shot down lots of Germans and uh, was kind of redeemed by the love of a good woman. That happened every time. And I think British cinema audiences were slightly jaded by these because they, they kind of knew the truth of what had been going on. So they, they, they yearned for a, a British telling of the story. And um, the first of the few was that. That was uh, Leslie Howard, the um, very big Hollywood star at the time, British Hollywood star, who just starred in uh, Gone with the Wind, the, the biggest film of all time. He came back to Britain during the war to help out and make sort of propaganda films. And he was one of those casting around for a Spitfire script. And, and when he found the, the story of the first of the few, which 
is a story of R.J. Mitchell designing the Spitfire. He leapt on it and starred in it as as, as R.J. himself, mm-hmm. uh, and it, you know it was a massive hit and went to America and uh, was retitled very meaningfully retitled Spitfire because that was the that was the one aircraft of the war that Americans would have known at that time. Yeah, and this is obviously taking us directly into the realms of the projects that you've been working on over the last couple of years, um, which has yielded both a podcast and a book. The Spitfire Kids is the book. It's sitting right in front of me now, but I thought it'd be a really nice opportunity really for you to explain what you were trying to do in that project that was a little bit different to the traditional telling of the Battle of Britain that we're, we're very used to. And... Um, I suppose it, you know, it connects to what we've been saying already. It's this like kind of idea of looking across the different stories which connect to the aeroplane. Yes, yes. It, it, the starting point was really the, the the podcast. The idea of the podcast for for the World Service was to look at the whole process of the construction of the Spitfire and how the production was spread out through southern England when the factory in Southampton was bombed. It was a it was a, an incredible effort of will to move all the machinery and all the workers out to very small country towns around southern England to actually build the Spitfire bit by bit uh, in, in tiny workshops and glove factories and car showrooms all, all, all around southern England, which was an incredible story in itself. But as I was making that and we were kind of collecting diaries and memoirs and uh, old archive interviews from the time together to make the radio series, it struck me that the people's voices we were hearing were incredibly young. There's a sort of famous statistic about the the average age of pilots in the Battle of Britain being 20, I think. Um, But we were reading these diaries from people who are 17, 16, 15, 14 even. You know, kids who, who, you know, who would now be sort of preparing for their GCSEs were were building Spitfires. And I I was just astonished by by how they must have felt. You know, you, you... the idea of suddenly being on the front line of a war at 14 in your first, when you're an apprentice or in your first office job or whatever, I just want to get inside their heads really and just think, you know, how scared were you? How, how, how surprised were you to be in this incredible historical position? And, and that was kind of the starting point of the book really was just, just get inside the heads of these teenagers and what they were thinking. We were free to go back to the interviews of, of the time of their personal diaries um, which which they, they they took which they wrote at the time, and through those you actually see beyond the sort of stereotype of the stiff upper lips and the kind of bravery in the face of fascism, and you actually get inside these kids and what they were feeling and and you know they wrote you know they would write write about their fear and about how the in the Southampton factory for example they they were ordered to stop sounding the uh, air raid alarms when when aircraft were spotted because it was happening so often that uh, production was getting getting disrupted and not enough spitfires were getting built so the air raid siren was only allowed to be sounded if there was an aircraft actually over the the factory basically dropping a bomb on it which was obviously far too late to um, you know save yourself and you know these people knew they were in the front line they knew that the you know the Ger- German airfields were thirty minute flight away in, on the coast of France, and they could be bombed at any time. And they knew they they knew the factory would be destroyed eventually, and they were they were the, uh, prime absolute prime targets. But I will go back to the um, the the film which I was talking about just a moment uh, ago, the first of the few, because there's there's a really nice scene in that that kind of fits with what we're going to try and do now. 
because you can imagine the scene of a an airfield somewhere in the south of Britain and they're watching the Spitfires come back after a dogfight in, in the sky and the pilots are talking between themselves and one of them says, I hear that the Spitfire was invented in two hours by someone at their golf club, you know, and then it cuts away to somebody else who said, oh no, the story is much more grave. A whole host of things had to happen before that miracle before us came to life. And I just thought that was a wonderful, wonderful kind of setup for what we're going to try and do today, which is go backwards beyond 1940, which of course is the history that lots of people do know, to chase the deeper roots of the Spitfire. And to do so, we're going to have to ask you the question we ask everyone who comes on the podcast, which is, Alistair Cross, if you could travel back through time, what year would you like to visit? I would like to visit 1925, Peter. Well, there we go. 1925 isn't a year that we visited before, but slap bang in the middle of the roaring 20s, it's a time which isn't that far away, but I don't know, seems worth exploring. As you mentioned, the Roaring Twenties, you know, it's got these sort of connotations of of incredible glamour. The First World War was in the past. Uh, there was a lot of wealth around. There was new music. There was new dances. There was just excitement in the air. And that, you know, that's that's what the appeal of the time is, really. And, and, a, and a race for speed as well. You know, this is when... Uh, world land speed records were getting broken and world airspeed records were getting broken as we'll, as we're going to go on to talk about so there's this kind of desperation for a new world something new and exciting and and uh, it's, it's socially spiritually and kind of uh, physically as well and you can see that in in the development of engineering and uh, as I say music and culture as well so there's just so much going on to kind of get your teeth into it and the birth of the Spitfire happens right at this point as well which is, is is why we want to talk about this year. Brilliant yeah I suppose it's before the Wall Street crash which happens a bit later on and it's also before that um, I don't know that that kind of really important moment when Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic Ocean that was 27 I think it's a bit later on so we're I don't know where are we in in the story in a in a broad sense where are we in the story of air travel at this point or is it it's still a very new thing isn't it yeah one of the most exciting aspects of this year and this time this period was something called the Schneider Trophy which was a race to build the fastest aircraft in the world and strangely enough at the time the, the fastest aircraft meant seaplanes uh because airports were, were were very much in their infancy and the idea the feeling was that people would travel from city to city by seaplanes because most of the cities great cities of the world were on rivers or or by the ocean so it was it was an obvious way to do it without building kind of airport infrastructure and a chap called Jacques Schneider a French industrialist introduced this prize actually in 1930 actually before the first world war Partly because he he was he felt aviation was developing quite slowly, so he, obviously the Wright brothers had come up with the the Wright flyer going at whatever it was twenty miles an hour, and development had happened quite quite slowly up to that point. Obviously, in the First World War, development sped up a lot, but again, it slowed down after the war because nobody had any money, and you know aircraft had proven themselves in in a military capability, but people couldn't afford to fly. You couldn't build planes that were big enough to carry you know, enough passengers to be economical. So it was, it, th- things were happening quite slowly. Um, but t- gradually this kind of level of competition between particularly France, Britain, the US and Italy 
uh, built up around this Schneider Trophy and engineering teams and military teams on each in each country uh, struggled to build something better and faster that each year could race against the others and win this coveted prize. One thing I was, um, because the, the Schneider Trophy is, obviously it's something of its time, isn't it? It, it? it was, you know, kind of over a 20 year period or so. Could you just explain, I suppose, quite briefly, because I think we might be going to <laughs> to that later on, so we can talk about it more then. But um, how did this race play out because of course you can't have a circuit in the air um like a, a formula one circuit or something like this but um there had to be some measure of control over the participants so how did they actually compete how did the, the race go forward the schneider trophy was done as a sort of time trial so each aircraft would take off and go around a circuit and the circuit was chosen by the winner of the previous year's trophy so if it was Italy, then the Bay of Naples was sometimes chosen. If it was Britain that had won it, then they would do it around the Isle of Wight and, uh, and the Solent estuary. Uh, and there'd be a you know, sort of timed circuit and each aircraft would, would do that. Let's, let's get into the format now of the time travel and ask you where you would like to go in 1925 for your first of your three scenes, please. Well, I think we should start in Rome, which is always a nice place to start. Mm, perfect. Because on the 3rd of January, 1925, uh, Benito Mussolini gave a speech to the Chamber of De Deputies, the, the Parliament effectively, in which he took complete control of Italy. He became the dictator. He, he had been in power by democratic and semi-democratic means for a few years at that point. But, and he'd been kind of gradually running down the democratic institutions uh, and, and, and cementing his hold on power. Um, but some of his supporters uh, in, the, in the fascist party thought he was going too slowly and they assassinated a, a socialist leader and basically pushed Mussolini into acting, acting more quickly. And he gave a speech to the Chamber of Deputies in which he said, I and I alone assume the political and historical responsibility for all that has happened. And that was him saying, yep, I killed a socialist leader and tough. I, I, I'm in charge now. I'm the dictator. If, if, you want to, if you want to get rid of me, you're going to have to fight me. So that was the start of the, the Mussolini dictatorship, effectively. And it seems natural as, as a beginning point for the age of the dictators, which follows, because, of course, Hitler at this point was um, a long way away from the, the chancellorship of Germany. So Mussolini is, um, of course, far before him but does this i suppose in in the uk which is our primary focus with the spitfire is this taken as a unnerving political development already i mean it certainly is it, it, it people are watching it but there's a lot of admiration for mussolini as as i'm sure most people know you know the you know the trains the trains ran on time famously and his um pushing of the kind of engineering and stylistic elements of, of of Italian society really attracted people as well you know the, the, the Italian engineering went on leaps and bounds and and that fed into the Schneider trophy competition you know he was Mussolini himself was very much intent on winning this trophy because it proved that Italian engineers were the best and and at the time they probably were uh, so there was this, this obviously incredibly negative connotations as well but you know there were positive aspects of the sort of style of Mussolini that were were attractive to people in Britain as well. 
Mm. Can you describe the kind of aeroplane that was competing in the Schneider Trophy in, or was expected to, maybe that's the better way of, of um, posing this question, that was expected to be entered into the 1925 uh, Schneider Trophy? Because you say the Italians at this point were probably the strongest nation um, and they I know they'd won several years before and then you have this political development which kind of adds this nationalistic aspect to the story um are we if we were to imagine a kind of machine they were to enter is something like a you know a biplane of the sopworth camel kind of type about right or had things moved on since then they hadn't moved on enormously there were two basic type basic types that were competing here both both would have been biplanes you had what was uh, a flying boat so effectively one a single hull like a boat uh with wings and an engine stuck on the top of it and the italians were using that and, get, and uh, getting more and more powerful engines which is why they were very successful um for 1925 though the americans had come up with uh, something a little bit different which was a, a bi or biplanes uh with floats so they're a bit more elegant looking. Uh, so it, it looked like a, you know, a very smooth, streamlined version of a Sopwith Camel with a couple of floats on the bottom. Um, and, the, and they were the kind of the peak peak of the time as we went into the 1925 uh, competition. Let's, I tell you what, let's move on because I think there's a really nice development that you'd like to go to next. So if we leave, if we leave Mussolini in the Chamber of Deputies in Rome, having started off there. Where would you like to go to next in 1925, please? Well, my next date is uh, 10th of March, 1925, and we'll go to Southampton, which is the birthplace of the Spitfire, mm-hmm. uh, because this is where the Supermarine Company w- was set up, um, and it was the date that the Southampton flying boat was flown for the first time. Now, this is a completely forgotten aircraft. Nobody's interested in it. Nobody's going to write a book about the Southampton. But it's absolutely crucial because it was the moment that R.J. Mitchell, who would be the designer of the Spitfire, made his name, made a commercial aircraft that made money and guaranteed the survival of Supermarine as a company, which then allowed him and the company to go on to build the Spitfire and, you know, win the Battle of Britain, really. So there's so much for us to unpick here. I don't know whether to start with... The machine itself or with rj mitchell the designer why don't you tell us a little bit about the southampton it's very much a product of its time so in 1925 the british government had no money but it had an absolutely enormous empire to try and keep hold of and there were rebellions breaking out all over the place uh, there was a famous one in mesopotamia where it required a hundred thousand soldiers to hold back a, a Sunni Shia militia who'd combined together to, to fight the British. And the thought was, there's got to be an easier way of doing this. And in that particular war, bombers were the answer. They bombed the hell out of a few villages and the tribes surrendered, not surprisingly, after lots of civilian deaths. A very familiar kind of Iraqi story, I think. And there were revolts happening in Egypt as well and rebellions all over the place. And there was a feeling that you couldn't keep up the standing army moving from place to place to put down rebellions. So what you needed were were aircraft that could fly a long way, land easily, be used for ferrying officials and military people around and potentially for bombing as well. And 
R.J. Mitchell uh, was, Reg Mitchell, was uh, born in Stoke-on-Trent and worked in railway engineering for a while before he got a job with uh, Supermarine in Southampton. It's a very young, uh, rather eccentric little company on the south coast. And they had built one or two aircraft for the First World War, uh, but it specialised in seaplanes um, because they were on the coast and the, the, the man who ran the company was, was slightly obsessed by them. So R.G. Mitchell had been kind of improving some of their seaplanes and gradually developing them. And, and the Southampton was his first real effort at, at uh, building a full-size model. And the air ministry had actually commissioned some airships to fly to on a route to Cairo to sort of connect the empire together. And that had been a disaster. So when they saw that uh, R.G. Mitchell was planning this much more efficient aircraft, they actually bought a bunch of these aircraft off plan uh, before they'd even been um, tested, which was an incredible show of confidence in mm. Mitchell as a designer and in the company to build them. And, and, and that kind of caught fire in other, you know, other air forces and companies around the world put in orders for the aircraft as well. So it, it gave this company such an amazing chance to kind of build up its, its, its prosperity and its, its confidence. Mm. I mean, Mitchell himself, let's talk about him because he seems, well, you, you talk about the Spitfire kids later on, these, these very young people. Actually, Mitchell in 1925 is only 29 years old, I think. He's been the chief designer for six years, so he was appointed at just 24 years old. You describe him as being stubborn, temperamental. He's um, got this quite strange sense of humour, but he's probably the finest aircraft designer in the country at this point is that a fair point i think so yeah i mean there's a whole sort of generation of them at various small companies around around the country because uh, you know a generation has been inspired by seeing the right flyer and mm. you know the exploits of the aces in the in the first world war so it was, it was a very young industry a very young engineer so all, you know all the big names were kind of in their 20s and Mitchell was definitely the you know perceived as being the one to watch because he was willing to try things out that were a little bit different and a little bit risky and because he was employed at this very eccentric company um, he became chief designer there at 24 which, which seems absurd he had so much scope to do what he wanted in this small company hmm. well you pick the 10th of march um in southampton at the supermarine factory supermarine probably we should say a word or two about them because you also describe that as an as an odd company and an odd quite small company in a way which itself is only 10 years old or so and um you know kind of founded by this person who's a blend of an aviator an inventor and a politician which <laughs> which seems really eccentric to us i suppose as well um it's down in Southampton on the south coast of England with plenty of water nearby so they can test out their new models. But this moment on the 10th of March is is important, isn't it? When the flying boat is kind of debuted or it goes out into public for the, for the very first time. Is it a successful flight? It, it certainly is. It certainly is. And it's, you know, it's watched by important people and it repays the trust i suppose that the air ministry has, has put in the company you know if, if if anything had gone wrong with that then the company would have been finished mm. so the fact that mitchell was able to put his design purely his design into the air show it worked and in front of you know important officials meant that supermarine were guaranteed a, a future and you know with their future was a spitfire mm. 
Wow. So let's talk about the engineering aspect of this a little bit. What was different about this um, this kind of plane? I'm still searching for the right vocabulary because I know at the time <laughs> the, the words were a bit amorphous as well. But what, what had changed be between what we were just describing just a moment ago, these old biplanes and this particular model? Well, this was a very sort of tough and practical aircraft. It had to fly, be able to fly a long way. It could fly 500 miles um, on a single uh, tank of fuel and it could refuel in heavy seas from a, from a ship. Uh, uh, so it could reach corners of the empire that nothing else could before. But it was also sort of well-armed so it could protect itself. And it was actually quite comfortable as well. It was, it was one of the first aircraft, I think, to have a, a toilet for the, for the crew. So they could keep flying without stopping. And there were, there were hammocks in it as well, so they could sleep in it. So the idea was you could fly lots of these aircraft um, you know, to a spot in the empire where there was trouble going, going on, bomb, bomb the natives, fly back, all, all, all without uh, any trouble whatsoever. And they, they, they proved it. It was a kind of, in a kind of very modern marketing uh, technique. They flew, I think, 20 of these aircraft around the British Isles in a 10,000-mile circuit in, I think, 20 days, something like that, um, to prove that this just how reliable this plane was. I wonder if any of them got up to Orkney. That's maybe a good thing for you to for you to ponder. But it, it <laughs> yes, is. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. But the but at the same time, it is worth stressing this this idea of the flying boat being a slightly different thing to what we think about and know so well today. The things that actually fly over my head every you know 120 seconds in in West London. You know this. Um, I don't know. It's it's almost quite romantic. This picture of. Um, the airports not existing, but air travel being kind of entwined with the nature and the geography of a city. So, you know, you just come in and land on the Thames and then get ferried off. And if you were going to New York, you'd land in the Hudson or something like that. It's, um, I suppose it's a logical, logical thought. And that's exactly how this, this was working. And I suppose why Southampton was a, a good place to have a factory and a business like Supermarine. Is that right? Absolutely, because you had the maritime expertise there. In fact, right next to the Supermarine factory, there was the John Thornycroft shipbuilders who were the absolute cutting edge shipbuilders in the country, probably in Europe at the time. So expertise could kind of swap across the fence, basically. Yeah. And as well, you you have to make the obvious connection with the kind of the great ship launches that must have been a familiar part of the, the seascape in Southampton for so long. I mean, wasn't Titanic from there as well? I know she was from Belfast at some point, but she she set sail from Southampton. So there's a kind of dovetailing of two different histories, the maritime history and um, the aeronautical history here, isn't there? Yes, and, and you get a real sensation. Even now, if you go down to Southampton, um, the original slipway of the supermarine factory is still there. So they built the slipway before they built the factory, I think, because they knew it was going to be seaplanes they were predominantly building there, or they th thought that was what was going to happen. And you can look out from there to see the docks where, as you say, you know, this, the Queen Mary and the uh, QE2 and the Titanic would, would have sailed from. So the whole city kind of gathers around this kind of uh, nautical theme and, and the aircraft were an integral part of that. And it's, and it's one of the reasons why Southampton was such a kind of cutting edge place at the time in the, in, in the run up to the war because technology and new ideas was was kind of coming in from all sides there from from all, all across the empire and, and the developing world so it was it was a fascinating 
place to be in the 20s and 30s. Mm. Well, we, of all the people that would have been there, we'll just concentrate a little bit more on R.J. Mitchell for a second, because I'm really fascinated by him as um, as just a biographical character, really. Is he someone, through the research and the writing of the book, that you, I, I suppose you came to know him well, do you... Did you? Is he, would you have liked to work with him? Was he? Was he a great tyrant in the office, or was he a bon viveur who could take people with him? Because these these pioneers, these engineer, engineering pioneers, often have um, you know kind of equally outlandish personalities. So, do you want to say anything about him and and what he was like? Yeah, I mean, you certainly don't come away liking him as a man. Uh, he he's everyone who writes about him and everyone who was interviewed about him, you know, in, in the immediate aftermath of the war, talks about his temper. He had an incredibly short temper. Now, a lot of people put that down to the fact that he had he had bowel cancer uh, in the last few years of his life and was basically in pain the whole time. So it's not it's not entirely surprising he he had a very short temper. But reading a little bit deeper, that seems to have been there right from the start. But he was also an incredible collaborator, which was crucial in, this, in the Spitfire story. He would, when he, when he was considering an idea, when he was looking at a component or how something would work on an aircraft, he would call his team together. And they were all very young. Uh, you know, they're all late teens, early 20s. He would gather them together and talk through the idea and he would listen to everybody's idea. And if, if it was a stupid idea, he'd shout them down and they wouldn't, they wouldn't get another word in edgeways. But if it was a good idea, he would he would take it on board and it would become part of the aircraft. And that was really vital because he died so young. He, you know, he, he, he saw the Spitfire fly, but he certainly he died well before it was was in combat. And that was so important during the war because he built up this team of young people because they were able to develop the aircraft as the Germans developed their Messerschmitt and brought in the Focke Wolf and other new fighters, the Spitfire could keep up because this team knew the aircraft in great depth and were willing to were able to collaborate and come up with new ideas to make it faster and uh, stronger in, in in the competition in the world in the Second World War. Mm. If we were to um, look at the Southampton. Maybe we can try and find a. I don't know. Is is there much imagery of it that survives? I don't know. You, you might be able to say, but um, would there be anything recognisably Spitfire-ish about it, or is that all to come in the future at this point? There's absolutely nothing in the Southampton that you could associate with a Spitfire. You would look at that aircraft and think it was almost the, the almost exact opposite of a Spitfire, which is why what comes next is such a surprise and such an astonishing revolution. Because R.J. Mitchell's hard at work. Brilliant. Well, that's the perfect setup for the third of your three scenes. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colorgraph.co. 
At Colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Where would you like to go to next, please? Okay, we're going to be a slightly more glamorous location. We're going to move to Baltimore. Uh, on the 23rd of October, 1925. Right. So what's happening in Baltimore then? So this is the 1925 Schneider Trophy. Um, And from a British perspective, there's more excitement than there has ever been before because RJ Mitchell has had the time and the money, which the Southampton success of the Southampton flying boat has helped with, he said the time and the money to design an all new aircraft, a complete revolution in aircraft, basically, to compete in the Schneider Trophy and win it back for Britain. So what he's come up with is something called the Supermarine S4. And it is stunning. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful aircraft you'll ever see. It's a kind of silver dart set on top of two enormous floats. And... It basically looks, looks like a mini Spitfire. Um, if you took the float, chop the floats off it, it looks exactly like a Spitfire. So this is a monoplane. It's got the engine integrated into the fuselage. It's made of steel tubing. This is completely different from anything that's come before in the Schneider Trophy. Nobody's ever seen anything like this before. And he's also got rid of all the kind of... The, the monoplanes did exist. There were some in the First World War. Um, but you required lots of sort of wires and struts and things to keep the wings stable. He did away with all of that. So you've just got this incredibly smooth creation. I mean, it looks like something out of Flash Gordon, basically, if you remember mm. sort of Flash, Flash Gordon films, either of the 30s or, or, the, or the 80s. It, it looks like it's landed from another planet. You know, any, anybody who'd looked at aircraft before, from the Wright Flyer on to, to the, the creations of the 1920s, you, you would never have seen anything like this. It, it, was, it was a complete revolution. So we're talking essentially about a paradigm shift almost in, in engineering or a new era for air travel. And this all happens in this interval between, you know, the moment in March when we're, we're looking at, you know, the, the Southampton in Southampton and we're looking at the S4 in Baltimore. But of course, it probably is more complicated than that. Is this a project and a vision that Mitchell has had for years and he's just managed to realize it now. No, it was it was it was done very quickly. I, I, I think the, the you know the the creation of the Southampton would have been happening a, a year or two before the, it's made in flight obviously. Um so they weren't they, they weren't being designed in parallel as such. Uh you know once the Southampton was kind of ready to go he moved on to this S4 plan and it seems to have come from nowhere. He just seems to have had this vision he knew that to win the Schneider Trophy back for Britain, he was going to have to come up with something different because the Americans had developed this very fast biplane. It was very efficient. It looked good. It was flown by uh, 
military pilots they, they were it was the one to beat so he knew he was going to have to come up with a design that was completely different so this freedom up really to just try the most extreme version of his ideas he could possibly come up with. Yeah, it seems to have been um, received with great enthusiasm as well. You've got a quote in the book from Flight Magazine, and they say, one may describe the supermarine Napier S4, Napier being the engine maker, is that right? As, That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, as having been designed in an inspired moment. that The design is bold, no one will deny, and the credit, the greatest credit, is due to R.J. Mitchell for his courage in striking out on entirely new lines. It's a it's a nice quote, that, which captures, I suppose, a little bit of the sense of admiration and astonishment and progress, which we associate with this moment. And um, I suppose the biggest question <laughs> which everyone had was, is it going to fly? Was it, was it you know, kind of just a, a looker or was it going to be um, actually practically useful so do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened on that day yes well well before that day it had um the first few flights had been a little tricky uh the supermarine test pilot a chap called Henri Biard uh who was a bit of a character himself and had won a previous Schneider trophy he mm. he he found it very hard to see out of the visibility was terrible and he I think on taking off he nearly crashed into a liner on uh, landing he nearly crashed into a dredger um, so he was very critical of that side of it but once it was in the air he thought it was he w- it was gorgeous and they managed to break the world speed record almost instantly reaching I think 226 miles an hour which was pretty pretty astonishing for the time so yeah just to quantify t- that I think previously I had a look it was something like 170 miles an hour so you're you're going up enormously just with this one design change. Yeah, yeah, and and, and you think you know the right flyer twenty years previously was was twenty twenty mile, twenty miles an hour <laughs> exactly. So, so things were things were moving things were starting to move really fast in in every sense, mm. in every sense here. Um, but because it had the success and the speed, um, by the time it was loaded onto a liner to head over to the states for the Schneider Trophy competition um everyone was talking about it you know it was it was it was the talk of the aviation world and 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 beyond really so i i mean um biard henri biard i think i'm pronouncing that right as you said he's a great character in himself and um there's a wonderful bit in your um in your book about a previous race where he gets a bit carried away and starts looping the loop and has a bottle of brandy in his pocket and, and so on, which um, makes him wonderfully endearing, if not probably the most trustworthy of pilots you'd want. But he, he seems to do pretty well. Do you want to tell us how Biard goes that day in the new S4? Yes, so they arrive in um, in Baltimore and uh, set up camp, and uh, things sort of start going wrong right from the start. Um, a, t- a tent pole collapses on the plane and damages the tail, and they have to fix that. And the weather is awful, and they they, they have real trouble uh, doing any test flights. But finally, weather clears. They get a chance to go up against some of the other aircraft for a first test flight. Um, there's British and American aircraft flying at the same time. BR takes off, and the spectators on the ground think he's doing some stunts because he kind of flies back over the pier at a strange angle and, and they're they're applauding him because it looks like he's 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 showing off as he as he had a tendency to do anyway. Takes the plane out to sea and the plane seems to stop in the air, spirals into the sea and hits the Atlantic Ocean with an incredible crash. Everyone assumes he's dead because how, how could you possibly survive 
something mm. like that. And RJ Mitchell's actually witnessing this, isn't he? He's travelled over with the rest of the Supermarine um, team, hasn't he? He he is, he is. And there's a terrific photo of them on the, on the liner together. Beard looks sort of relaxed. They're, they're all in uh, tweed suits and ties, obviously, on, on these deck chairs on the liner. And Beard looks kind of relaxed and ready for anything. But RJ Mitchell stares at the camera with this kind of fixed glare and... You know, it's terrible to read things into somebody's look from a from a photo, but mm. you know, he he knows Beard's life is in his hands because he's built this thing that has is built for speed and nothing else. You know, safety is not even a part of the consideration. So he's tense. He's incredibly tense, and and always is at the uh, at these moments. And he watches the plane fall into the sea. He thinks he's killed his one of his best friends. Pops into a sort of high speed launch to go out to the crash site and the launch breaks down so he has to <laughs> go, go back to the shore get another boat head out and all this time Beard is underneath this crashed aircraft desperately fighting his way out and manages to do it he actually manages to get himself out of the aircraft back up on uh, to the uh, into the air and it's freezing he's absolutely freezing by the time Mitchell and the boat reach him he's he's broken some ribs he's got hypothermia and he's f- basically furious with Mitchell it's taken him so long to to to, uh, to get there but I mean this is such a key moment in history oh absolutely and so I mean in so many ways it's so vivid as an anecdote in itself if it was contained just to you know a, an accident at an air show or an air race but when you consider the wider significance of the first um kind of competition entry for a for, for, for an aeroplane that would go on to become the Spitfire. It's quite a beginning, isn't it? It, it, it certainly is. And, and, you know, that could be the end of the story. And in some ways, it perhaps should have been the end of the story. Why, why would you let somebody who'd built that aircraft um, build another one? Because obviously there was no kind of diagnostic reports or anything at the time. Yeah. Nobody really knew what had happened. Um, I think the, the accident report just, just said it had stalled. Beard thought it was due to wing flutter, which, which you get in all, all aircraft. Um, uh, biplanes are less prone to it. So building a monoplane, you get more flutter. And because, perhaps because Mitchell had done away with all these wires and struts that hold the wing stable, all to get a more kind of aer- aerodynamic shape, that may have caused more wing flutter than you would normally get. And that might have been what, what, what took the plane so down. So he just you know, might, he may well have lost control in that, in that scenario. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the wings would have basically flapped around more than he could possibly control, and it just mm. took him down. It's certainly a fascinating being. You say this this should have been... Um, I, well, I don't know whether to linger on the scene for a moment, because it is quite... It's almost comic in a way, isn't it, now that we know that, that there hasn't been a f- fatality. You can see these two friends who, in this quite ludicrous situation, and this is almost the... Um, magnificent men in their flying machines moment where you, you have to go and fish your friend out of the Chesapeake after having having um, seen him crash. I mean, that, that must have been enormously a charged moment. But it isn't the end of the story for the machine. And maybe this tells us a little bit more about Mitchell as well, because he's persistent, isn't he, in his belief in the, the value of this and the safety of it. He is. He's, he's absolutely sure he's on to the right thing with this monoplane design and he persists with it and he knows he can get it right so he he basically builds something called the s5 which is very similar but it's an all-metal fuselage and he brings back some of the wires and struts to sort of stabilize things 
and that is entered for the 1927 Schneider Trophy and wins easily. This is the one that's held in Venice with Mussolini in attendance, ready to kind of welcome another Italian victory. But the the British pilot wins very easily, partly because they've by this time the British government have put some money in and um, uh, have supplied the pilots. So there's something called the RAF High Speed Flight, which is a, a group of specialist pilots who are being trained to fly the most high-powered aircraft. So they're perhaps better equipped than Henri Biard, who was a bit of, a, bit of an amateur, uh, to fly these incredibly powerful beasts. And sure enough, they they, they, they win the competition and bring the bring the trophy back to Southampton. Mm. At what point, I, I suppose, is, is 1925 um, too early for us to start thinking, well, to, to think in these nationalistic terms? I know we started off in Italy with Mussolini's Ascent and him claiming total power is at that point you think a motive for um, the, the production for people like Mitchell is it just mere rivalry or or is there a kind of general acceptance that if there's going to be another conflict that air conflict or that you know kind of control of the air is going to be fundamental to the victory? There certainly is because. At this point in history, there's a belief that the bomber will always get through. There's a belief that the bomber is the future of conflict. And that if you've got the biggest bomber fleet and you start a war with somebody, you send your bombers over, you flatten their cities, they surrender. That's the end of it. That's that's a, a very common view in military circles and political circles at the time. So there's just a few people in each of the countries who think, actually, you can build a plane that's fast enough, a fighter plane that's fast enough to to get to these bombers and shoot them down and some people are promoting this idea so the, so the, the idea of a very fast fighter to defend your country is, is quite a powerful motive and certainly part of the schneider trophy story mm. well i have to say actually on, on reflection of all the scenes that we've talked about throughout the course of this podcast and we've done episode after episode now I quite fancy going along to the Schneider Trophy. I mean, it seems like a very strange spectator sport, which is very, very of its time as well. And they did have lots of people turning turning out to watch these, didn't they? Did you? I, I don't know if you've got a number, but there was certainly thousands of people would crowd in to watch, almost like a, a Formula One race today. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. I think uh, 1931 uh, was held on the Solent, and there's an estimate that there's something like half a million people crowded onto beaches around Bournemouth and Southampton. Um, and this and and the, and the popular papers really picked up on it. You know, there was prizes for air races and things at the time from the you know Daily Mail and the Daily Express, and they were quite obsessed by it. But by, by the Schneider Trophy, actually, wow. um, there's a, there's a kind of crucial moment which comes a little later in um, 1930 uh, 1931. So the the Great Depression's in full flow by this time, and uh, the Labour government think it's absurd to spend money on training up pilots for this this race and they and they take away the funding and um somebody called lady lucy houston who is a um, millionaireess and rabid anti-communist she she basically believes that the labor government are, are communist stooges and she's furious that britain is not going to defend herself by building these fast aircraft so she actually offers a hundred thousand pounds to the government to sort of embarrass them into helping out and you know, there's not much they can do about it. They're they're phenomenally embarrassed by the, by this uh, offer. Um, so they have to support the 1931 race again and uh, and 
sure enough, Mitchell builds another aircraft which wins. Yeah, and then was it three in a row when you kept the trophy or something? Was, was something like that, didn't it? That's right. So, so 1931 was was Mitchell's third in a row victory, and uh, sure enough, Britain kept the Schneider Trophy and, and I do uh, believe it's, it's never raced I again. Think, I think it's somewhere in one of the museums down. I'm not sure which of the museums, the Science Museum, maybe somewhere like that. I think I'll, I'll have to I'll have to check it out. But it's uh, yeah. I suppose the thing is they get, they're going fast these these planes, but not so fast that you couldn't follow them through the sky. So it would be a tremendous thing to watch, and it's just so exciting to think. Um, that you would, in 1925, if you were there in Baltimore on that occasion, you'd witness a crash, of course, but you'd also witness the very, very beginning of, or, or you know, of the the Spitfire story. And it, you said before that it was recognisably something that would become a Spitfire. Is that right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. The, the, if, you, if you kind of cut the floats off the aircraft, it would look like a small Spitfire. It's uh, very similar in style. Do they exist now, or are they all disappeared from from museums? I mean, I, I, were many made of the S four? No, there was just, just it was just one or two of each model, um, oh, and okay. there there is one in the the Solent Sky Museum in Southampton have uh, have a model. Um, so that's S6 where you're gonna have to go if you're gonna have to have a look at them. Well, well, brilliant. Listen, this is um, this has been remarkably informative and and good fun. There's a few questions I've got left before I let you go though. Um, uh, first of all, you might need a moment to think about this, but um, take your time. It's always a fun one. A bit of material history. If you could reach your hand out as we were going through these three scenes today and bring some tangible memento back to have with you as a reminder of 1925, is there anything you would like an object? I think I would like Henri Biard's flannel suit. Um he was a very old school character who, even in the heat of the Bay of Naples in summer, would wear a thick flannel suit to fly in, and uh, along with his bottle of brandy that he had with him as well. Yeah. And it just, for me, sums up the kind of eccentric aviation characters of the time. Oh, that would be brilliant. You can imagine it having a slight alcoholic whiff and a bit of petrol mixed in as well. A bit of a, <laughs> you know, a bit of a, a pungent smell. And maybe if you did wear it at work, it'd kind of might speed speed everything up. You know, you might be more productive <laughs> if you were if you were sat at your desk wearing that. So that's a that's a thought. Well, listen. Last of all, I've just got to like kind of invite you to say a little bit more about the book or or the podcast i imagine it's just been a, an immensely enjoyable project to work on because that's the 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 feeling i get because the spitfire is something that we're all familiar with at, at one level but there's so much that i learned from reading and listening that is kind of equally as rich as as the iconography if you like would you like to say anything more Yes, well, it's the it's the astonishing characters you 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 find when you dig into a subject like this. You know, you you may know the basic history, you know the story of the Battle of Britain, and you know some of the f- famous flyers like Douglas Bader and people like that. But when you you know you dig a little bit deeper, you find characters who are even more fascinating and even braver, and are are put under such incredible pressure and tension to produce their moments of bravery that kind of affect history and finding those people and sort of telling their stories that haven't been given wide uh, that haven't been given a, a, a wide audience before is is really an inspiring thing to be able to do 
Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Good luck with the book. And I recommend heartily the Spitfire Kids to you all. Thank you very much, Alistair Cross, for coming on Travels Through Time. Thanks so much, Peter. It's been great fun. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Alistair Cross about the genesis of the Spitfire at the Schneider Trophy in 1925. Alistair's co-authored book delves into all of this history in captivating detail. It's called The Spitfire Kids, the generation who built, supported and flew Britain's most beloved fighter. To see some photographs of the S4 and the Southampton, two of RJ Mitchell's designs that were mentioned in today's episode, do head to our website, which is tttpodcast.com. Otherwise, that's it from me today. We'll be back with more next week. Till then, goodbye.